Over the past several years, more than half the drugs approved by the FDA have been for orphan diseases and cancers, while many other more common diseases are seemingly being ignored by drug developers. What's driving this arguably skewed research investment, and what can be done to change it? I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Robert Kocher and Brian Roberts, partners at the venture capital firm Venrock. Doctors Kocher and Roberts have written a perspective article called The Calculus of Cures. Dr. Kocher, to start, you say in your article that it's not mysterious why certain projects get funded. So can you walk us through the decision process that you might follow when faced with a drug that needs funding for development? Absolutely. It's not a mystery because at every point in the process, there's a calculus that's done by both the company that wants to produce the drug and investors around what's the risk-reward of investing more money in a project at this point in time. There's four broad categories, though, that we spend our time unpacking as we think about these choices. The first one is the overall cost we believe it will take to get a drug to market. The second one is once it's on the market, what will it cost to actually sell the drug? And the last two are really important kind of contextual things about how a drug will do on the market, which is how differentiated will it be at the point in time it's on the market from what's available? And in particular, they're generic that you have to differentiate from because they're often very inexpensive. And then what's happening to incidence and prevalence of the disease? So is the market growing or shrinking, and how, how does that intersect with a product that would be in development? Those are the factors, and, and those change over time as well. And so the calculus you make at one stage may be different as you move forward and learn more in that process. Dr. Roberts, you explained in your article that many drugs designed for orphan diseases and cancers tend to have relatively low development costs, whereas drugs for, for example, type 2 diabetes or psychiatric disorders often have high development costs. What factors determine those costs? Most basically, those costs are determined by the number of patients in the development program for a drug for any specific therapeutic area. And so those diseases such as new targeted cancer therapies or orphan diseases where there are, number one, they are very life-threatening. And so the efficacy safety trade-off is different than for some more chronic diseases. But it is also true that there is a very large and discrete unmet need in those orphan disease and cancer populations such that the efficacy signal is often quite evident. It's not a subtle signal compared to either placebo or, in the case of head-to-head clinical trials, another drug. These efficacy effects are quite easily evident, and therefore it takes a smaller patient population to, in fact, uncover those efficacy signals. And given the dire and acute problems for these patients, the safety bar is reasonably lowered. You argue that many clinical development programs are excessively large relative to the amount of information that they end up yielding. Why would investigators design a trial that is too large and, as you also say, goes far beyond the point of diminishing returns for documenting frequent safety events? So to clarify a little bit, I think we would argue that the number of patients investigated in a development program for a lot of these chronic conditions, you know, primary care products, these development programs that are currently taking 
5,000 or 10,000 patients to get through. In fact, it's not that they go too far. It's that between the development program and once they're on the market, they sort of get stuck in the middle. And so what we would posit is that there is a smaller number of patients under which you can elucidate both the efficacy and frequent safety events for a patient population being treated with a drug. There is then a very important but long tail of infrequent safety risks that are going to be associated with a drug. There are all sorts of them in sort of the history of literature of drug discovery. But assuming you have found your efficacy and gross safety signal in 500 patients, the next 5,000 patients are in fact not enough patients to be able to uncover with you know, any real degree of surety this long tail of safety events. It would take 20,000 or 30,000 or 100,000 patients, which is impractical to do pre-marketing. And therefore, what we are positing is that given the current state of information technology and data infrastructure out there in the world, which is entirely and fundamentally different than it was 10 or 20 years ago, there's the opportunity to, in fact, get drugs on the market earlier, but on a conditional basis, and have actual required following of the first 20 or 50 or 100,000 patients that take a drug. And that way, you, in fact, will get the actual amount of data that you need in order to find the long tail of safety events. But what you would do as a byproduct of that is you would decrease the development costs of these drugs by some, you know, 50 to 75 percent, and thereby, in our estimation, increase the innovation in those areas. So to go back to a little bit more to the beginning, you proposed that the threshold for FDA approval should be defined in terms of efficacy and fundamental safety. Some would say that that's what's currently happening. I think the issue here is the definition of fundamental. So how would you define fundamental safety? I would say fundamental safety is the more basic level of safety are what are the frequent side effects and are there clear things that we've learned in the first batch of patients that would lead you to conclude that a drug is safe or not or should it be limited or specially used? And then an identification of what are the longer tail things that you want to watch for so you can design the proper long tail safety monitoring program. That that is really what you want as opposed to what we do today, which is an intermediate step of having a broader set of known safety signals, but an insufficiently large set of data to identify the really scary, long-tail, and less common things. And the tit-for-tat exchange in that is that today's quite high bar for FDA removal of a drug from the marketplace would be dramatically lowered, right? So drugs would be approved almost on a trial basis such that you could explore them more broadly in a broader, larger patient population, again, knowing that they do offer a fundamental benefit to patients. But, in fact, it is entirely possible that you would uncover over time unacceptable safety events that you couldn't find in your clinical development program. And at that point, the FDA would have a very low and you know, facile bar 
for restriction or removal of these initial drugs from the market. And we think that can be designed in a way, too, to mitigate FDA from political pressure and industry pressure with you know, transparent criteria, perhaps an independent body that sort of says yay or nay, and, and therefore a confidence that we could all have that would work, as opposed to being you know, delayed and blocked and gerrymandered. So that is a major question. Suppose we take your advice, the approval and surveillance process shifts so that more of the safety data is collected after the drug goes to market. What would the regulators, the policymakers do the first time there was a serious safety problem revealed after a drug had been widely disseminated? What would happen? Well, hopefully they'd be able to more effectively notify all providers because of the electronic connections that we now have, as well as know where the patients are to help stop people you know, who are on drugs that could be harmful. And it would be found earlier, right? With a proactive monitoring process that you would in fact find these issues earlier. I think personally that the big issue in this proposal, and look, no proposals are perfect, is actually the lack of control groups for post-marketing studies, which would make it more difficult than in a controlled clinical trial to actually be able to determine signal from noise. This process would be much better than let's say, the, you know, the Vioxx appropriate issue set or the GLP-1 pancreatitis issue sets that appear to have less basis in them now. But you would have less surety than you would in a specifically controlled clinical trial under these circumstances. Do you think that enhanced record-keeping and reporting would go some way towards solving that problem? I do not believe that you can solve the control group issue You can mitigate it by a larger N, a larger number of patients. I do believe that record-keeping and electronic record-keeping into a central entity for surveillance is a fundamental underpinning of the ability for this sort of notion to go forward. To shift gears a bit, you say in your article, too, that drugs prescribed by primary care physicians have higher selling costs than drugs prescribed in hospitals or by specialists. Given that many of the most widely used drugs are, in fact, prescribed in primary care, what can we do to reduce those costs? There are several things that can be done. The first is the reliance on people to walk into their offices, to sit down with them, to hand them a printed copy of an article and take them through the key points is a, you know, extremely costly, hard to scale, and probably unnecessary model through which to sell drugs. And so moving more of this into a carefully segmented exercise where you actually call on the right doctors, you can do it electronically, and you do it in ways like podcasts and email and the way in which we market every other product in the economy, as opposed to having humans do it, does hold a lot of promise. The second thing is that in a program like this where you're going to have drugs come to the market sooner and then more surveillance, there's actually going to be more information exchanged earlier in the process that might mitigate some of the need to have a human representative come and detail a doctor directly. And then finally, there's absolutely the opportunity as we begin specializing care into ACOs and, and more narrowly defining what doctors do to probably reduce the number of people that you call in altogether because prescribers will be more concentrated as patients are more concentrated among those doctors that are more specialized in their conditions. Finally, to what extent do physicians' prescribing habits and patterns affect trends in drug development? 
Is there anything doctors can do to help nudge the pharmaceutical industry toward more balanced investment aligned with the burden of disease? I think you're already seeing that go on. I don't think it's driven as much by the individual doctors as it seems to be driven by the reimbursement practices. But there, you know, is a long history, Nexium being, you know, sort of the primary example that I can think of, of marginal differences in efficacy or convenience driving, you know, sort of soon to be generic to branded with a long patent life drug switches. I think that's diminishing these days as a variety of doctor and reimbursement practices begin to recognize more of the balance set between cost and differentiation. And so I think actually that's going on, you know, sort of as we speak and as doctors writ large become much more informed and attuned to the cost of the procedures they perform, the services they provide, and the drugs they prescribe, I think they're much better able to integrate cost and value into the equation of how they treat their patients. And I would add, this transformation of the doctor and reimbursement system, I think, meaningfully reduces the selling cost of a drug to the extent that the drug offers real differentiation from other products on the market. Thank you, Dr. Roberts, Dr. Kocher.